Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. We're going to be in the book of Acts as we continue this series. And uh, as you turn there and jump over to Acts chapter 5, let me just say uh, heroes are pretty common figures in our, in our public ethos. It's a pretty standard thing for us. And, and really, every storytelling world uh, longs to identify with, with a larger-than-life uh, supernatural figure who is selfless and just and sacrifices uh, for the, deeply in order to bring about the good of others. Uh, maybe you've heard of one of those heroes, and uh, I want to just throw some names on the screen. I want to see if you can call out who they are as you see these names on the screen behind me. Who's this guy? That's the original superhero. If you don't know him, you may need to plug in a little bit somewhere, some sometime in our life. Um, you probably know who this is. Uh, maybe you're a little more up to date with this. Look at this next screen. Uh, you see uh, some of these guys, and these are uh, which one's the which one's the greatest Marvel hero? So you've got like 18 different answers there, right? This is the problem with Marvel. There's not like one thing we all get behind. Everyone has their favorite. Uh, it's just the way it works. Someone likes the little guy Ant-Man over here. Um, uh, but not all heroes wear capes. This next one is one of my favorites. Uh, sometimes you got little guys that become heroes out of the humility of their service. And uh, they, heroes come in all sizes, a little more. And this one ought to hit both generations now, thanks to last summer. Um, you go Top Gun, and that one's a little more real. I mean, that one's real, right? I mean, it, yeah. Uh, and there's other places we could go to talk about heroes. We could. Uh, we just came off Veterans Day. We could talk about heroes who charged the beaches of Normandy. We can talk about heroes who gave their lives in all kinds of ways. But this idea of heroes is something that pervades all societies and all times, and has always been there. And what I want us to say, to, I want to say to you today is. Identifying the true hero of your life will determine the course you take and the choices you make. Identifying the true hero of your life will determine the course you take and the choices you make. So let's read together in Acts chapter 5 and see what we can learn about heroes. We're going to start in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people and by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Not the, none of the rest of them dared join them. But people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to, their, added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And Peter, the people gathered from all the towns around Jerusalem and were bringing the sick and those affected with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priests rose up, and all who were with him that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles, and they put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared, opened the prison doors, and brought them out, and said to them, Go and stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and began to teach. 
Now when the high priest came and they, those who were with him, they called together the council and all the synod of all the people of Israel, and they sent them to prison to bring the, the apostles out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison, the prison securely locked, and the guards were standing at the doors where they were posted. But when we opened, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what in the world this has come to. And soon someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are now standing in the temple and preaching to all the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by all the people. And when they brought them and set them before the council, they questioned him and said, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are, and you fill all Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. And as we look at this passage, it's a pretty remarkable scene that sort of unfolds as we walk through this. And really what we're glimpsed at is another kind of appearance of what the early church and what happened in that community of people that followed Jesus in that day. And we've, we've been watching several of these unfold through the book of Acts, but mostly before they've been focused on what's going on, on inside that community. Here we see the community, but we're kind of getting a view of what the outsider's view of that community is. And what you see is like any other movement. You see some that, that look in at what's going on and they respect them. And, and it says many are believed. It says there are people being added to their number daily. But then there's others who look and says they respect them, but they're going to keep their distance. They're like, I'm, I'm not going to get too close. And then there's others that respond with complete rejection of what it is that they said. Uh, this is what, there's an interesting thing I want to point out in verse 12. You notice where it is that they're meeting? It says they're meeting in a place called so- uh, Solomon's Portico. Uh, here's what's interesting to me this week. I just was thinking about this, and uh, this this is just one of those random kind of connections with the life of us, uh, of what's going on in the life of our church as we're moving downtown. Solomon's Portico was a place in the center of the city where everyone in that world would have known exactly where it was. It was a place they frequented, a place they went by, a place that, that it was easy for them to find. And what's interesting is the apostles strategically chose to go to Solomon's portico in order to share the gospel because they knew that was kind of the hub of that world and everyone was revolving around there. and They wanted to be in the proximity of the people so they could tell them about Jesus. And isn't that cool that we are going to get to go and be kind of in the hub of our city? to do exactly what it was that they were doing. And it was hard for me not just to, run, or just to run past that as I was thinking about that this week. But you notice it's one thing uh, that, that when you see the disciples, remember, these guys have been under pressure. They've been experiencing this, but they're not backing down, are they? They're actually running into the fray in order to go and share the gospel, and they're continuing to share the gospel and to care for people. In Acts chapter 4, if you remember, they were uh, they had healed a lame man, and the lame man went into the temple, and he was leaping and proclaiming God and worshiping God, and they were excited about that. And the religious leaders had called him in at that time and said, hey, who did you heal this guy 
how, how did you heal this guy? What name? And they said, Jesus. And they said, you're no longer to speak that name. Well, did that shut the disciples up? No, they just went right back and were like, I think I'm going to go to Solomon's portico and just share a little bit uh, about this. I'm going to continue to care for people. Do you notice the, kind of, the, the plan that was unfolding as they were doing this? Um, they were caring for the visible needs of those around them. So it says they're healing the sick. And so the people from all the cities around them, word is getting out. And they're, they're telling him, hey, bring your friends that have needs to come and hear and experience the care of those who are followers of Jesus, which is pretty remarkable. And it says that the Lord was adding to the number those who belong to Christ or belong to the Lord. Uh, interesting little fact there that, as well that says that it added to the number of men and women. This was a culture that oftentimes overlooked women. It oftentimes saw women as, under, uh, as kind of underservants and, and, were, and were disregarded. And Luke is being very specific here in saying there were multitudes added to the number men and women, meaning the Lord didn't overlook them. The, the, though the world may have overlooked them, the Lord didn't. And so there were men and women that were invited in and they were coming in to trust the Lord. But here's what you see is it, there's this fascinating thing of Peter's shadow. Any of you think that was a weird one? There probably was a superstition that the shadow was considered in that time an extension of people. And when they saw the mighty power of what was going on during that, and when they heard the stories of all that had happened, they were probably a little fearful. And they were fearful to, to go all the way up to him. And so they just were trying to get even within a shadow's length of Peter in hopes that maybe they would experience the goodness of the Lord and the care and the power of the Lord that would heal them. And they did. That somehow the God, God was so gracious that even in the midst of that, that he was willing to heal even that weakness of their faith. And the, it mixed in with um, some other stuff. Now, so what you see is people are being healed. Outsiders are taking notice. People are believing. Uh, but there, were, there was always growth. And can I just say, when you look at the book of Acts, you see this phrase over and over that says, and there were, there were people added to the number daily, those who are being saved, or those who are added to the Lord. Uh, there's, a, there's kind of this expectation in the book of Acts that when God is present and when God's people are, are serving him and when they're caring for the needs of others and when they're sharing the good news of the gospel, that, that there will be continual people added to their number. Now, there's factors to that. Uh, God's sovereignty is at work. The cultural context is at work. The responsiveness of the people is at work. But somewhere in God's timing, there's an expectation that people are going to be added to the number. And you see that, and that's always presented in a positive light in the book of Acts, which is a pretty, uh, which, and it's, it's a repeated thing. And in Scripture, when you see something that's repeated, it's meant to get your attention. And uh, that stirs my heart. Friends, we should never be content to, to allow people in our city not to know the name of Jesus. That if we really believe that his mercy is more and that he has saved us, that he has given his life for us, that he has rescued us as a savior, that he's become our leader and his way of life is the one that brings us fullness of life. We don't want to tell everyone about that. And we, we will never be content if there's people in our city who don't know that kind of life. And so that ought to compel us and propel us forward to go and share the gospel with others. But any movement of God also faces resistance, doesn't it? And notice what happens in verse 17, there's some that rise up. It says, but the high priest rose up and all were with him. They're gathering those around him and they're beginning to push back. They don't like this. It says, in fact, that they were jealous. What was it they were jealous of? They were jealous of the success that, that Jesus was having. 
that Jesus was being made known. And there was all these people that were uh, flocking in. There were people from all around the regions that were coming in to hear about Jesus, to be healed by Jesus, to find out about Jesus and connect with Jesus' disciples. And they're going, hey, that's the Jesus that we got rid of several months ago. We don't really want his name being propagated here. And so they had told them to shut it down. You notice that the religious leaders are kind of following a script. Like if there was a, if there was a, manu, a manual for how to fight against a resistance movement, they're kind of following it. You notice they took out Jesus. And then last week what we saw was they told the, the lead disciples, Peter and John, he says, hey, they took them and they beat them and, 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 and brought them in and questioned them and scolded them and said, you're no longer to heal in this name. Well, now they've taken all of the apostles and put all of the apostles in prison. So if you can't deal with just the top, then you take the, the lead guys, then it's like, okay, we've got to start gathering more. And what they're doing is they're trying to intimidate, they're trying to, to execute a power play in order to silence them and, and to quash this movement because they don't want it to spread. If nothing else, they're saying, if we, if we create fear, then uh, by beating up the leaders, then maybe all the, the rabble, all the people coming in from out of town will keep their distance and this thing will just kind of die out. Now, ultimately what happens when they put him in prison? Did you guys catch what happened in the story? They, they lock him up. Uh, the, the, the prisoner guards didn't fall asleep. They were right there in the post. Uh, the doors were locked. But somehow it says the angel of the Lord, a representative from God, came and just got them out of prison. And so there's this miraculous supernatural thing. And, and here's what the undercurrent of this entire scene is, is that... Uh, these religious leaders, these, the kind of leaders of Judaism in that day, the, the same men that, by the way, had killed Jesus, the same men that had, had, said, had screamed crucify him at Jesus in the same town just a few months after this, these same men are trying to quash this movement. And what's God say? There's nothing you can do to shut this thing down. I mean, you can lock them up and they're going to break out. Um, I, I am going to override this. So in some ways, God directly intervenes. He sends his angel, he delivers them, and he immediately says, now go right back to the temple and do what you are doing before and preach the gospel. Teach them about Jesus, the ultimate cosmic power play. Uh, these guys say, hey, we're going to shut the movement down. And God goes, yeah, you, why don't you try? Um, I'll do whatever it is that I want to do. And so the message the angel gives them is significant. You notice what the angel's message was. It was a direct repudiation of what it is the, that the religious leader said to do. They said, you're no longer teaching this name. What did the angel say? Go back. Go back where? Where were the religious leaders? In the temple. He said, go back to the temple, and I want you to teach. And I want you to teach them everything of this name. Notice, though, there's an interesting phrase, or an interesting uh, phrase that's used here. He says, speak to the people all the words of this life. When it says this life, it's talking about the life that we have in Christ. Speak to the people all the names of this life that comes through Jesus. Don't hold back. Let them know what it is. But here's what's fascinating to me. The fact that God sends them to preach the message of life in the temple, he doesn't say go back and preach the message of judgment, does he? He says don't go back and preach the message of repudiation there. Uh, Peter's going to get to that later, and he didn't shy away from it, and there's times when we need to give it. But here's what's fascinating to me. In the midst of these leaders who killed Jesus, who are shutting down the movement, who are doing everything they can to quash the word of God going out, he says, I still want you to hold out grace to them. He's going to wayward people, even to the religious leaders who were responsible for fighting against Christ and for killing the Son of God. 
He says, I want you to go preach to them life that they would have if they would simply repent. They too could experience forgiveness of sins if they will own their sins and admit that they need a Savior. If they need a leader who is stronger than they are, I want you to preach this life, this unique life that comes only through Christ. Here's what's fascinating in the book of Acts. In Acts 3.15, Jesus is called the author of life. He's the one who somehow writes life upon us and tells us how it is that we discover it. Jesus himself said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. What Jesus was saying is, as good and beautiful and wonderful as life is on earth, I want you to have more. There's something truer. There's a deep life that I want to give you. It's why we as a church, our vision statement says, we want to help people wake up to deep, meaningful life in Christ. Because it all comes from this. And everything in here, everything we do is because we want to be a life-giving presence in our city, telling them about these words of the unique life they can have in Christ. It's what we want to discover. And ultimately, what we're saying is, Jesus is my hero because he gave me a life that I didn't know before. He gave me a, a better than or more than life. Now, in, uh, this is exactly what the angel of the Lord told them to do. He gave them, uh, it's interesting that God sent an angel and told them to, to directly disobey the religious leader's command. What he's calling them to is civil disobedience, right? Verse 21, he says, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. See, when, when the religious leader said, you're no longer to preach this name, you're no longer to heal in this name, you're no longer to, to assemble and to tell the people about him, God intervened and freed them and gave him, uh, them a command that says, I want you to go right back to the temple and I want you to preach the word in that space, the word of God's grace. How did the disciples respond? Verse 21, when they heard this, entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Isn't that good? I, I, I call this daybreak, I'm calling this daybreak obedient. O- obeying God at the very first opportunity. See, the temple opened at daybreak. So, so in, in their culture and in that world, whenever the sun came up, the temple was to open. What did the disciples do? They, they waited. They were there. They were like people waiting for a concert in a line back in the 80s when you actually had to go physically to a place and buy a ticket uh, because you wanted to see the show and you didn't want to miss out. These were guys that were kind of waiting at the door uh, they, were, they were just kind of waiting for the doors to open so immediately they could step in and start telling people about Jesus. Uh, daybreak obedience. They, they were quick to obey. They didn't wait. Uh, do you find it hard to sometimes operate that way? Can I ask you a question? Or Do you practice daybreak obedience? Or do you practice kind of chill, laid-back obedience? Kind of reserved obedience? Is your obedience immediate? And they gave quick obedience. They weren't trying to shirk responsibility. They didn't try to kind of hedge their bets and go, ah, I don't know, maybe like we'll get around to it when we get around to it. Like I got some other things I need to take care of today. I mean, they probably had, they like, we, we probably want to get there to when the market opens because we'll, we'll get the best pieces of uh, uh, fruit, we'll get the best produce, we'll get the best stuff. So maybe if we just go to the market and do that, then we'll stop by the temple a little later and see if that squeezes into our schedule. Uh, we. Any of you feel like we operate that way with our spiritual life sometimes? It's like we look at our calendar, we pull up our phone, and we go, oh, that's really busy. I think I got like a 15-minute window in there somewhere where Jesus can sort of make, a, kind of make, a, make an appointment with me. Um, it's interesting to me that when you think about these guys, they, they didn't really say, uh, they didn't start finding excuses. Things go, well, 
Let's see, the angel of the Lord said, we need to go to the temple. We need to share when, but he didn't tell us when we had to do that. So maybe we can probably put that off. And you know, it seems a little risky. Like we just got out of prison. We got in prison the last time we preached the gospel. So maybe we give it a couple days till the kind of the, the excitement dies down a little, and then we can go and we can tell a few people because that seems like that'd be less threatening or less fearful for me. Um, and isn't that how things play out in our heads a lot of times? We say things like, eh, do you think God really meant what he seemed to say there? Like, how did, did, he, did he really, did he draw a line there, or was that just kind of a gray area? Uh, do you think God really understood what it would be like for us to try to obey that in our day? See, we, it's so easy for us to kind of do mental gymnastics with our, with our obedience and say, well, it looks like God said this, but uh, maybe, he meant, maybe he meant something more like this other thing over here. And we begin to, to dodge. And friends, are there places in your life where you know what God says about something, but you just aren't doing what he asks you to do? I think there, there are places in our lives that we need to surrender to him. We need to begin to practice daybreak obedience. We say, man, if this is what he said, I want to, I want to obey. Um, not simply out of some kind of a guilt. The apostles didn't balk. They obeyed because they knew how much God loved him and they believed deeply in the resurrected Jesus who had saved him. They said, why would I hold back? Why would I wait? I want to obey as soon as I possibly can. And that compelled them to act. Now verses 21 to 24, when you get down to that section, you notice that the high priests, uh, kind of, they get up a little bit later in the morning. They're dragging in. They're doing their thing. And they say, okay, why don't you guys go get the guys we threw in, in jail? Uh, let's, let's bring him in and let's have a conversation. Eventually people come back in and they go, dude, they're not there. Like the prison guards didn't fall asleep. They're still posted right where he put them. The doors are still locked, but the dudes are not in the jail. We don't know where they are. Now, there's an interesting side note that the Sadducees were actually responsible. Uh, they, they had partnered with the Roman government and part of their job was to keep the peace in that area. And so they got to share the power with the enemy, Rome, and, and kind of help govern that area, but their job was to keep the peace. So when you say that when these guys that they threw in prison got out and they don't know where they are, and it says they were a little perplexed, I think it was a little more like they were a little bothered. They were a little like, oh, what's this going to cost us? Like, how much are we on the hook for for throwing guys in jail that we don't, now we can't, we can't find and we can't locate? Who's going to take the fall for this? And they were a little bit at a loss, which seems sort of uh, understandable, right? Like if you lock the doors and put someone in and you go to pick them out, take them out, and they're no longer there. seems reasonable to scratch your head at what's going on there. Um, but it's interesting that then they finally figure out where they are, and they said, look, these men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. It's interesting the statement they make is a, almost, it uses three of the same verbs that are used in the, the statement the angel made. When the angel said, go stand in the temple, preach to the people, um, that's exactly what it says they were doing. Our guys were obedient, weren't they? They didn't run in the face of pressure. They simply went back to the business of sharing the gospel, caring for the needs of people, and they continued to do the work in this civil disobedience. Now, what begins to happen is these religious leaders become more fearful, doesn't it? It says that they, now they're going, well, we need to go arrest these guys again because they got out once. We need to put them back up. We need to shut them down somehow. But it says they're fearful because they're afraid that the people will act if, because, uh, afraid that the people will actually turn on them and stone them. Later, they're going to tell the disciples, uh, you're trying to put this guy, Jesus' blood on our hand. Like you're trying to say, you're, you're trying to say this is all our fault. You're pointing the finger at us. And they're kind of doing that like, don't you put that on me, Ricky Bobby thing. Like they're looking at the disciples going, don't you put that Jesus thing on us. 
Now, they were guilty. They had actually done it, but they don't want to associate. They're trying to distance themselves from the disciples and from the apostles and everything that it is, and they're becoming afraid because the people are looking around going, man, these guys are doing nothing but helping everyone, and they're preaching good news, and they're talking about a life that sounds like something I want, and you guys are throwing them in jail. And there becomes this kind of intensification of the conflict that's happening. Uh, one thing that's obvious is there's no confusion here, right? Like, they're not, there's not just a misunderstanding where uh, the disciples go, oh, dude, you're misreading us. We're not really saying that. The disciples are going, yeah, that's exactly what we're saying. That Jesus whom you killed, he rose from the dead. And it's in his name that we're healing these people. And it's in his name that we have new life. And it's in his name that we preached. And we're not going to shut up. And you can't shut him up. You can lock us up. And God's going to break us out. Because there's nothing that you can do to, to quell, uh, quench the the message of the gospel. And so what Peter says is you get down to verses 29 and see what he says. He says, we must obey God rather than men. Isn't that true? This statement that what Jesus says is really the heart of the passage. It's the key to understanding everything. He says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, meaning, hey, we have some common ground with you as Judas, as Jews who have inherited from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the faith. So we have common ground, but it's that God, the God of our fathers that we have in common. He's actually the one that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Jesus that you killed by hanging on a tree. And God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior, give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Peter is giving this message then to those disciples. Friends, we must obey God rather than men. That's true of them. It was true. It's also true of us. This is something we each need to settle in our own hearts. Because our lives are filled with places we have to choose to obey God rather than men. Uh, that, that is true in our day, I think even in increasing fashion. I think we aren't those who, Christians aren't those who adapt our beliefs to the prevailing winds of the day. Remember when we played football, we used to kind of go like lick our finger and stick our finger up in the air to see which way the wind was blowing. Then, um, you know, you kind of feel the coolness on one side. And you're like, oh, the wind's going this way today. I should adjust accordingly. We don't do that as Christians. We don't put our, our, our finger in the air to see which way the winds of culture are blowing and go, oh, we're going to shift and just go that way today because that's the way the wind happens to be blowing. Uh, we, it's, not, it's not that they want to just be right or they want to be dramatically dogmatic, but they, they aren't going to bend and we're not going to bend because we know that this is the way of life, that Jesus himself brings us flourishing and wholeness and fullness of life, and there's no other way that we can be saved and experience that life apart from Him. And so we don't, we don't flip-flop and go back and forth based on the, the direction of the wind. Look what Peter says next. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, uh, you, you tried to put Him in a grave, but you couldn't keep Him there. He came right back out because God raised Him from the dead. But he says, it's the same Jesus whom you killed. Uh, do you realize that this is just a few months after the cross? It's in the same city as the cross. Where they went to the hill of Golgotha and they watched Jesus carry that cross, or that beam, and they watched it, the, the nails pierce his, uh, his wrists and his feet and they saw a spear step aside and they saw him breathe his last and groan and say it is finished. Where, where these disciples had watched all that, where Peter was so fearful that he denied he even knew Jesus three times, where the disciples ran and, and, and hid and scattered. This was just a few months after that. And now that same Peter is standing in front of these pigs and said, look, 
Our God raised that Jesus from the dead, the Jesus whom you killed. But he's also making a pretty profound theological statement. He says, by hanging him on a tree. See, to be hung on a tree was a cursed death. In fact, Deuteronomy 21 in the Old Testament says, if a man has committed a crime so terrible that it's punishable by death and he is to be put to death, then you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Friends, the, the, the Son of God, the Creator who was there when this world was breathed into existence, through whom all things was made, through whom we have life at all to breathe, that same Jesus was cursed and hung upon a tree and dead, died there a dishonorable death. And Peter's saying that you accuse Jesus of doing things worthy of a dishonorable death, but God vindicated him by raising him from the death he gave him. God exalted him. Friends, do you understand the gospel message that Peter is preaching? Jesus is our hero because he lived a perfect life and allowed himself to be given a dishonorable death among criminals. The blameless took upon himself the blame he did not deserve so that those of us who are, who are blameworthy could be seen as blameless. It's the great exchange of our faith. Christ was blameless. He associated himself with those who, who were dishonorable. And because of his dishonor, we got raised to a place of honor. And it says that God looks upon us and sees our sin no more, and he sees us as blameless because of Christ. That's why he's our hero. And Peter goes on to preach this message. It says, God exalted him as leader to the right hand of the Father, as leader and Savior. What he's saying to these religious leaders is, I know you think you're leading, but you understand Jesus is in the heavens. He's at the right hand of the Father. He, he is above you and over you in every way, shape, and form. Uh, this phrase, uh, leader, it's interesting because it means, uh, it really means one who's given the preeminent position as ruler and leader. It's one who shares authority with God. He's saying Christ is, he's our leader. He's our hero. He's the one that goes before us. He's the one that shares all power. He's the one that holds nothing back, and he's our Savior. And in this passage, the Trinity, all three members of, of the Godhead are, are present, aren't they? God the Father raised him up. God the Father exalted him. Jesus Christ is the Savior and leader. The Holy Spirit says as a witness testifying to the truth of who Jesus is. All of God is, is working together to make sure that the gospel goes forward and no one can quench it. And what happens in verse 33? It says, when, the, when these religious leaders heard it, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Isn't it a sad thing that someone could hear the good news of the gospel instead of being cut to the heart and surrendering their lives to it and experiencing life? They're enraged and they want to bring death. That's what happens when we reject Christ. It always leads us in, uh, towards destruction. Now, in, in the verses we didn't read, what happens, let me just kind of summarize, there's a guy named Gamaliel, who's another one of the priests. He's a little bit of a different group from these guys, but they're there and, and kind of wiser heads prevail. So where these guys are enraged and they're like, let's do to these guys what we did to Jesus. Like we didn't learn anything, right? Uh, they're going to attack these guys and come at them with the same rage. This mature, respected leader counsels them not to retaliate too strongly. And he makes a, a fascinating statement. Uh, listen to his, his logic. His logic is, is that if this movement is, is just contrived and made up by men, then it's not going to last very long. and doesn't really need radical opposition, does it? 
He says, but on the other hand, if this movement is actually from God, then you really don't want to oppose it because it's going to end very poorly. If it's from God, you won't be able to stop it. Um, You see what he's saying? That the staying power of a movement uh, helps you evaluate it as a movement. So his counsel is, dude, just let these dudes go. Uh, There was a couple other guys that rose up and they gathered three or 400 guys and then they died or self-destructed. That movement dissipated within a couple months and everyone went away. Let's just keep our hands off and this thing will go away too if it's not from the Lord. But if it is from the Lord, then there's nothing we can do to shut it down. Um, It turns out to be a prophetic statement, doesn't it? Uh, It's interesting. How many years ago was that that he made that statement? Uh, Well, over 2,000 years ago. And here we are, right? Here we are sacrificing and giving because of the same Christ, caring for the needs of people around us because of the same Christ, sharing the good news of the gospel of his grace, uh, the grace of the same Christ. And we're moving forward in a mission and we're seeing people added to his number. And God's doing that in our church, but in churches all over our city, all over our world. You're seeing radical movement of God in, uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, in Africa, and in Asia. You're seeing God exalted in all kinds of new ways. And where governments like China have tried to shut it down, you see the church, even in an underground movement, flourish and expand and boom. Because of what, what he said was true. If God is a part of it, No matter how you oppose it, you can't shut it down. Friends, I know it's easy sometimes to fear. But it's interesting here that these guys have great confidence. So how do the disciples respond? Verse 41, 42. It says that they left the presence of the council. The council brought them in and and said, well, let's just beat beat these guys. Maybe it'll shut them up a little while and they'll send them back out. So they beat them up, let them go. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching, teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. See, it's not that they were happy just to suffer, because that would mean they needed therapy, right? But they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. That the fact that they could suffer for Christ, their hero Jesus had suffered dishonor on a cross for their salvation, so they rejoiced that they could suffer dishonor for the hero. They they walked in faith to him. It's interesting, one guy said, the leaders beat them to produce shame. In a strongly shame-honor-oriented society, to be dishonored normally meant to be, be considered shameful. The phrase counted worthy to suffer dishonor is an oxymoron, a dishonor that is a cause for joy. See, for them to be associated with Jesus, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to do what Jesus did, brought them great joy. They were filled with with joy and glad hearts because of that. Friends, let me ask you this. I want to just give you four things. What does it look like for you and me to live out following Jesus in a world that, I mean, sometimes it feels hopeful, sometimes it feels hostile to our faith. But what's it look like for us to live out faith in a world like that? Uh, The early church was obsessed with their hero. They were obsessed. Uh, with, with life in him, with sharing him, with serving in him, with living for him and, and looking like him. Uh, that was their focus, and I think that needs to be our focus too. Uh, and here's what I, I want to do. What, what are just some ways that we can do to live in the same way that they did? Uh, first is be committed to daybreak obedience. Uh, we, I love that phrase, just the idea that when, when God shows us something we need to do, I mean, we don't hold back, we just jump. We do it at the very, very first second we can. And so let's be daybreak obedience Christians who we serve fully and without reservation 
um, immediately in obedience to Christ. Uh, Let's be committed to tell others about your hero. Friends, is Christ your hero? If he is, wouldn't you talk about him? And when you watch a football game and you see a guy play, make a game-winning play, and you go and you're like, dude, did you see so-and-so and what they did? Why would that be less true of the most important area of our life? Why would we not go and say, dude, can I tell you what Jesus did and about the life he gave me? Uh, thirdly, let's be committed to follow your hero, even when it means disobeying men. Friends, the, the winds of culture are going to flip-flop and they're going to go, Every generation is going to swing from one extreme to the other, but the word of God is true. Let's be those who obey the Lord rather than men. Lastly, let's be committed to follow our hero, even when it means suffering for the name. Whatever it takes, whatever sacrifice, let's count it all as joy when we endure various trials because of the name of Christ, because we get to be associated with him. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make our hero ever more clear in our hearts and in our minds. Would you stir us up with love for Christ? Would you help us to understand more deeply what it it meant that he died for us, that we might live for him? Uh, Father, we pray that that would be true of each of us. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, Father, might today be the day where you open the eyes of their heart, that they recognize they need a leader and a savior named Jesus, who gave himself willingly on a cross, who suffered dishonor for them, that they might that they might enjoy honor, which they did not earn nor deserve. Father, give us a love for your grace in Christ through your Spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>